Well, we have finally come to the end of uh, Jacob's death, not only his life, but his long drawn out death that's been going on for chapters. But this week, we've definitely come to the end, and we can see this from the last verse of our text. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and would gathered to his people. I'm pretty sure that's, that's the end of Jacob. So our chapter begins uh, with Jacob sensing the, the real end is near, and he gathers all his sons for his final patriarchal blessing. Look at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and, and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And if you look at, at verse 28, you see this is a, he's going to bless them. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. So he's blessing them. It's this mo- moment of prophetic blessing, a glimpse into their future. So picture them all gathered around Jacob's bed. Uh, Leah's six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, all gathered in there, perhaps in a, a tent. Then there was the sons of uh, Rachel's handmaid, Billa, Dan, and Naphtali. Then also the sons of Leah's handmaid, Zilpha, Gad, and Asher. And then finally, beloved Rachel's late-in-life sons, Joseph and the youngest, Benjamin. There they all are, crowded around Jacob's bed as he squints up to them, trying to see all their faces. This is a big moment. These are the sons of promise. In the scheme of the book of Genesis, this is, or at least should be, kind of a climactic wrap it all up scene, if you know the book's almost over. The book started with God blessing his people in the garden. Genesis 1, 28, let me read it just because it's so clear. Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. It starts with blessing. And they're in God's blessed place in the garden, experiencing the blessing of his presence. But then the fall came, and they lost it. They lost the blessing. Man sinned, and they were cast from God's special place of blessing. And the curse of death came into the world. And then for the next 11 chapters, we see that all worked out, the spread of that sin into the world until it's everywhere, and then God wipes out the whole world. A sense of fresh start, but he starts with one family, and the sin continues, because we recognize that it's not a problem out there, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's in here. But then in chapter 12, God came to Abraham, and it says he blessed him. He picks up the blessing from Genesis, and he promises back Blessing to, to the world through Abraham's descendants. He would make them his people like Adam and Eve in the garden. He would give them a special place like the garden. He would be their God. It's a promise of, of 
salvation. And he says, all the nations will be blessed through them. And then this promise was passed from Abraham to Isaac down to Jacob. And now it's about to be passed to the 12 sons. The beginning of the 12 tribes, the people of God, the way of his salvation promise. So it's this big climactic moment. The final scene where all the characters are gathered. And we kind of expect things to to be wrapped up in some way, right? Some loose ends tied up. Jacob's going to give some some answers as he speaks about their futures. And we'll kind of go, oh, I see it, okay, I get it now. Uh, Kind of like, you know, the end of an Agatha Christie book where everybody's in the room and you finally find out who did it and everything's tied together. Or if you want the Scooby-Doo version, it's where Velma pulls the mask off. It's old man Johnson from the dock. And you're like, oh, it's Saturday morning. That was pretty satisfying to know who did it. But that's not what we get here, is it? Instead, as, as Jacob speaks his poetic blessings, we're kind of surprised and maybe a bit confused. Things aren't neatly tied up. The language is a bit vague. And our eyes are actually cast forward with more questions and bigger expectations. It's like the movie that ends and you're like, what? And you're yearning for a sequel, right? That's the way it seems like all the, you know, Netflix series end. You're just like, come on, and you got to wait three years. That's what we have here with the deathbed prophetic, fest, uh, prophetic scene here of Jacob. And I think as we, as we wrestle with it and go through it, it kind of evokes in us two main responses or emotions. And the first is simply humility. The scene, if, if, if you're tracking with it, if you're getting it, is first of all very humbling. We feel this immediately as we read Jacob's very first words as he speaks his blessing over his firstborn son, Reuben. Look at, look at verse 2 with me. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstborn of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. That's pretty good. He might be feeling good. Verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, that's not real positive. That's not encouraging. Doesn't speak well for Reuben's future. In fact, it doesn't sound like a blessing at all. It's more like a a curse. But look at verse 28 again. And all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to him as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. This is what is suitable for Reuben, a blessing that's more like a curse. 
He had tried to usurp his father's power and place by sleeping with his concubine, Billa, and Jacob had not forgotten. And although he was a preeminent son, the oldest, preeminent in power, strong man, a man of dignity, he was set up and gifted to be a leader, but he had betrayed and hurt and shamed his father with his perversity and proved himself unstable. So, this is the blessing suitable to him. No advancement will happen in his life. No preeminence. He will not lead his people, ever. And this is exactly what happens in his tribe. After settling in the Transjordan, basically, they, they kind of disappear from history, and no prophet or judge or king would ever come from his tribe. And notice how Jacob kind of finishes off his revulsion for Reuben with this distancing switch to the third person. He went up to my couch. What a humiliating moment. Exposed for what he is. And the best blessing he deserves is more of a curse to, be, to kind of become nothing. You can imagine at this point the other brothers... Uh, Kind of looking around, looking down at their feet. Now comes the next two. Maybe the blessing's going to be passed to them, but uh, it doesn't really get better. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, for in their willingness... They hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's, it is fierce. And their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now they have been cruel men involved in genocidal slaughter. Jacob doesn't even want his, his reputation to be attached to them. Oh, my glory, be not joined with their company. He prophesies the division and scattering of their descendants. He curses their anger. It's not a good start. Three first brothers. Doesn't look so good. And if we skip over Judah, which we will for a minute, the rest of the brothers except Joseph, although not as bad as the first three, don't exactly... Shine. I mean, I think Zebulun is the best. Look at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. See, okay, so his tribe will be a people who live near the sea and perhaps make their living and, and shipping. Oh, okay. Issachar, verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching between the sheepfold, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. He's a donkey, a strong one, and he's going to lead his people basically to become slaves because that part of the land was more fertile and just easier to work than to work in an area where they would be free. Kind of disappointing. Dan, 
verse 16. Dan shall judge his peoples as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his riders falls backwards. Hmm. A horse ankle biter. Not really sure what that means, but it doesn't sound that great. Sounds like kind of a jerk. Verse 19, Gad. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Oh, his people will become, you know, raiders of vengeance. In fact, the word Gad, that Hebrew word, becomes the word for raiding, Gad. They are the original raiders. It's not a great heritage. Asher, he's my favorite, verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. It's kind of like, well, Asher, he likes food. (laughs) He's going to make a lot of good food. His people are going to eat well. I was thinking this would be mine if uh, they were predicting the blessing. If it was my father, it would be like, well, that Carrie, he likes cheeseburgers. Fast food tribe for him. (laughs) Naphtali, verse 21. Is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns? I don't know. Commentators are kind of like, is it roguish? Is this good? Not sure if it's a compliment. And finally, if we skip over Joseph, we get Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. Doesn't sound so good. So do you get the feel? You see what's being said? You see, what we find as we read through this poem of blessing is that 83.333%, or 10 out of 12, of the brothers are either very evil and cursed or just pretty average guys going nowhere. They are at worst, these brothers, something horrible or at best nothing special when it comes to who they are and who they will be. It's humbling. Can you imagine being one of their uh, ancestors, uh, just a few generations, you know, removed? Would you be proud? Hey, Reubenites, let's celebrate our heritage. Oh, no, maybe not. Hey, son, remember we we come from Simeon. We have a rich history of genocidal murder. Hey, children, never forget our patriarch Dan, that great ankle-biting viper. Well, it's just it's just humiliating. I've known people who can look back at their great-great-grandpas and it's not something they want to talk about. How are these guys ever going to bring God's blessing to the nations? How are they ever going to do his redemptive work in this world? 
Look at what Jacob shouts out. The commentators kind of say this is kind of like a shout in verse 18. Halfway through, he shouts out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's kind of the point. Do you see it? These guys can't bring God's blessing, not in themselves. They can't do it at all. Reminds me kind of a Deuteronomy 9.6 where Moses says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess because, is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. It's very humbling. But of course, it's not just humbling for them, it's humbling for us because this is us. This is the Bible again, showing us ourselves. It often does that. This is who we are when it comes to God's work of salvation, helpless to save ourselves, much less anybody else. These guys weren't just blessed sons of Abraham, they were cursed sons of Adam, as we all are. Rebel sinners under the curse of death and judgment. And thus they were just average Failing people, some quite evil, but none good. It's funny when, when Jesus came and picked the, the new 12, you know when Jesus came and he picks the, the new 12 disciples, kind of to replace the, the 12 tribes as the new people of God, did they do much better? Judas, betrayal. As a lover of money. Peter, a man of violence, cutting off ears. And remember how that time, that, that time they went out and he sent them out on their own and they come across that demon-possessed guy and they're like trying to cast the demon out and they can't do it. And they come back, we don't know, we can't do it. And he says, well, did you pray? Well, no. They were trying to do it out of themselves, out of their own strength. But they couldn't. That's our defaults, people. That's what most man-made religious efforts are all about, right? We're trying to do it because we haven't learned humility before God, total reliance and dependence. We need the Lord. We need His leader, His ruler. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, says Jacob. Which brings me to the next response here, the next emotion that I think this text brings out of this humility. It actually brings hope. It brings both humility, it humbles us, and then it lifts us up in hope. Because in the midst of all these brothers, such a leader is revealed. As we noted, we skipped over Jacob's words and predictions about both Joseph and, uh, and Judah. And their blessings are, are, are both wonderful, hopeful blessings that stand out completely in opposition to their brothers. Of Joseph, Jacob says that his descendants will be so fruitful that the branches of their garden will hang over its walls. The roots will go into the river and the branches of their garden will hang over its walls to nourish all who come along. Like, like Joseph was in Egypt, right? He was the one who was the, the provider during the famine, nourishing everybody. That will be their nature as their tribe. 
They will be God's providers. And more, God will continue to protect and shepherd them. He, he will be their shepherd and their stone, like the rock of their salvation. And finally, Joseph will be blessed with everlasting bounties, blessings upon blessings. In fact, his son Ephraim's name means twice fruitful. That's what we passed on. So our natural tendency at this point is to think, well, obviously Joseph is the one. He's the one of blessing. He's the one of hope. He's been God's leader and ruler all along through this story. But surprise, he's not. Who is it? Well, it's actually Judah. Look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. He's going to be a powerful warrior. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. As you're like a lion. You see, what had been Joseph's place? where all the brothers had come to bow down before him. Remember the dream back in chapter 37? You all bow before me and how it's fulfilled. When he comes to Egypt, he becomes the, the ruler that they all come, the ruler, savior, they bow before him. It's all shifted to Judah. Why is that? I mean, you could make a strong argument that Judah is the worst of the brothers. Betraying his family to go live with the Canaanites because he had no interest in the promises of God. Sleeping with his own daughter-in-law and calling for execution when she's found to be with his child. He seems like the least likely candidate. But that's kind of the point. It's God's work. It's not about Judah's strength or purity or wisdom. It's all about God. It's about His gracious, sovereign work. He brings the blessing. See, if I wrote the story, I definitely would have chosen Joseph because he's been the good one, the blameless one. He kind of deserves it, and we would have missed the point. No, God reverses the blessing just as He did with Jacob and Esau just as he did with Ephraim and Manasseh, to demonstrate again that this is his gracious work of salvation. It's all of him. He broke through Judah's hardened heart with guilt so that he cried, she is more righteous than I, when confronted with his sin against Tamar. He brought Judah to be the first in the Bible to offer his life in exchange for his brother, Benjamin. Imaging the cross. And now God is making him the least, the worst, his vessel. He is lifting him up to be his ruler of his people, the one through whom all the nations will come to be blessed, which is why this text is so hopeful, because it's hope in God, not in man. It's all of the Lord, and that's good news. He is the God of their salvation of all salvation. It's in his hands. And this gets so hopeful the, 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 because of the imagery 
that Jacob employs for the, this hope that will come through Jacob. Look at verse 9 with me. It's two made images that, that capture it. Let's just read through it. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? He's powerful as a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The way of rule will keep coming from his descendants. That's what it means. It will not depart until tribute comes to him. It's an interesting sentence, and it could be translated more smoothly. Until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. The ruler's staff will not depart until the one who comes, who owns it. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, this is saying that not only will Judah's tribe be dominant and powerful and leading Israel, but bigger than that, from Judah's line will come a ruler who will be a ferocious lion. He will take the enemies by their neck like a lion. He will be king of all kings. The scepter will stop with him, and all peoples and nations will bow. Now, of course... As we know, this became part of their great messianic hope that, that, that just passed down through the centuries with, with Israel. The Lion of Judah will come. This sustained them through many hard times and defeats and times of slavery. The Lion Ruler will come. Their prophets employed this image as they cast the people's hopes forward. Micah 5.8, Ezekiel 19 at Yohan, where they talk about the lion. And look at what this lion will bring. Look at what his reign will be like. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You know what that's a picture of? Extreme health and wealth. That's what it is. Dark eyes and white teeth are that Hebrew language for, man, this is strong, healthy time. A time of vigor. This leader will bring a time of incredible thriving and prosperity for his people. In fact, his kingdom will be so prosperous for his people, such a wonderful time, that the choicest vines they will use as hitching posts for their donkeys. The choicest vineyards, they can just hitch them up and they can just munch away on all the grapes. And wine will be in such abundance you know, wine is this image of celebration and, and, abund and, and, and uh, prosperity. It'll be in such abundance that they can wash their clothes in it. Doesn't sound like a good idea, but you get the image. <laughs> wine, that expensive drink of celebration, will flow like, like washing water. It's such evocative imagery to bolster and sustain their hope. They clung to this. 
this imagery and, and, and great expectation, yearning for the days of the Lion of Judah and the wine of his kingdom. But you know what? Their hope in that pales compared to ours because it's come in Christ. You know, when we get to the New Testament, not only does Matthew make it very clear in his opening of his book in that genealogy that Jesus has come from the line of Judah. He traces it all the way back. But on top of this, John, in the early chapters of his gospel, tells us about the very first miracle of Jesus, which was what? Turning water into wine. It's one of the ones as a kid that I was like, ah, it's not a big deal. You know, he does better things. He you know, heals people and stuff. But John says it's a sign. He calls it a sign. He said it was his first sign, which means it's pointing to something. Well, let's see. Jesus turns water. What water was it? The washing water. He specifically, specifically points that out, John does. And how much was it? How much water was it? A lot, like 180 gallons of it, overflowing to the brim. He fills the jars full with the best wine. Wine as common as washing water. The Lion of Judah has come. He's come to bring the messianic age of victory and celebration and prosperity for God's people. And do you know what it says at the end of that scene in John? It says these words, John chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee to manifest his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Do you think they went, oh, the Lion of Judah? They would have known all this wine imagery. I think they kind of half believed because you read on and they have to keep believing. <laughs> but they started to get it. And then Jesus went to the cross to make it all happen. At the cross, as the roaring lion, he conquered the worst of all enemies, sin and death. He opened the way into his kingdom for all, blessing to the nations. And John later captured this moment kind of from heaven's perspective in Revelation chapter 5. We read it earlier. He tells us that at this moment, there's this mighty angel weeping because he can't find one, anyone worthy to open the scroll, the scroll containing the, the mystery of God's salvation, how it's going to unfold. But then this elder steps up and says, Weep no more. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered he says, behold, in fact. He says, look, the Lion of Judah has conquered so that we can open the scroll. And then they all look, and what do they see? They see a lamb looking like it has been slain. The lion is a slain lamb. And he's given the scroll of salvation to open. And this is their response. I'm going to read it again. And they sang a new song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. The blessing going to the nations. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God that they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on on the throne, to the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all the elders fell down and worshipped. If you're wondering what your response should be to this sermon, that's it. Let's pray. Father, we are not righteous, No, not one. We are sons of Adam, cursed in our sin. But your son is righteous. He is worthy, worthy to save, worthy of all praise. May we live in humbled reliance and in sure hope and in glorious worship of him. Pray these in his blessed name. Amen.